0: for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Hollywood royalty and Oscar nominee Kate Blanchett reflects on her life-changing role in tar. Food writer B. Wilson investigates the real impact energy drinks are having on young male consumers. And journalist David Robson reveals what a series of groundbreaking studies say about our power to shape our future selves. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Kate Blanchett's role as an abusive maestro is her most powerful and controversial yet. Here, the Oscar favourite discusses fame, missing Australia, and the strong reactions Tar has provoked with writer Sean O'Hagan. Read by Brani Rule.
2: When Kate Blanchett was a nine-year-old, attending music classes in suburban Melbourne, it was her teacher, Mrs McCall, who first noticed where her talents lay. I remember one day I was playing the piano, she recalls, and Mrs McCall put her hand on my hand and said, you haven't practised, have you? I just burst into tears and said, no, I haven't. And she said, I think we should stop. Because I don't think you want to be a pianist. You want to be an actor. Though she was disappointed at the time, Blanchett now realises how perceptive her music teacher was. She would have these concerts, and she instinctively picked up on how I would just come along and act the part of a musician. One cannot help but wonder what Mrs McCall would think of Kate Blanchett's leading role in Tar, one of the most talked about and argued over films of recent times. In it, Blanchett gives her most powerful performance to date as an imperious classical conductor whose public fall from grace sabotages her stellar career just as it approaches its apex. A much-anticipated performance of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. When Blanchett first read writer-director Todd Field's script, she said recently, I inhaled it. What was it, I ask, that so excited her? One of the dangerous and alarming things about the film is that it does not invite sympathy or offer easy solutions, she says. No one is entirely good, and no one is entirely innocent. It's a very nuanced examination of the corrupting nature of institutional power, but it's also a very human film, because at the centre you have someone in a state of existential crisis. At its premiere at the Venice Film Festival in September, Tar received a sustained standing ovation, and Blanchett won the Best Actress Prize, the first of several awards she has been given for her performance. Since then, the film has been hailed by many as a masterpiece, but has also been trailed by controversy, dividing opinion because of the culturally contested topics it touches on, including cancel culture and identity politics. It has also incensed some commentators with its willfully provocative portrayal of a powerful woman behaving as badly as powerful men more often do. Put simply, Lydia Tarr is a bully, a gleeful manipulator, and possibly a sexual exploiter of a series of young women enthralled to her genius. Writing in The New Yorker last year, Richard Brodie set a high bar for aggrieved outrage lambasting almost everything about the film, but particularly what he saw as its loaded ideological thrust. He took aim at one scene in which Tar rounds on a nervous young music student, Max, who identifies as a BIPOC pangender person and declares that he is not into Bach because of the composer's misogyny. Depending on where you stand, the scene dramatically condenses... Or, renders as cliché, the current generational cultural battleground in which the earnest certitudes of identity and gender politics threaten the once sacrosanct status of canonical, white male heterosexual, culture. For Brodie, it epitomised a regressive film that takes bitter aim at so-called cancel culture and lampoons so-called identity politics. I asked Blanchett what she makes of such responses if indeed she reads them at all. I've been very reluctant to talk about the film, she says, partly because it is so ambiguous and I don't want to define it for anyone. I also think it's hard sometimes for journalists because they see so many films and then they have to give an immediate opinion. A lot of people who have sat with it or watched it again have expanded their perception of what the film is. Not only is the character very enigmatic, but the facts of what has transpired if you want to call it the plot, are very vague. In a way, the film is a Rorschach test when it comes to the kinds of judgments people make in terms of the information that is alluded to, but never confirmed. I am speaking to Kate Blanchett via a video call to Los Angeles, just two days after her portrayal of Lydia Tarr won her the Best Actress Award at the Golden Globes. It is the third time she has triumphed in that category. A few weeks after we speak, she'll receive her eighth Academy Award nomination and, should she win, she is currently favourite, will become only the third actress in history to have been awarded three or more Oscars. The other two are Frances McDormand and Catherine Hepburn. Awards are lovely, she says, when I ask her about her decision to attend the London premiere of TAR rather than the Golden Globe ceremony. But we thought it was important to support the film's European release. The context for this may be that, although TAR has provoked a deluge of critical coverage, it has not performed that well at the American box office, being closer in that sense to the unapologetically cerebral films of European auteurs like Michael Haneke. Even on Zoom, Kate Blanchett has presence. Perched at a table in an expansive, minimally furnished room in Los Angeles, her blonde hair tied back and her face framed by a pair of large, thick-rimmed designer spectacles, she evinces an air of stylish cool, but turns out to be refreshingly down-to-earth. When animated, she waves her arms expressively, and in repose has that loose-limbed way of arranging her body dancers often have. It's a strange thing coming to discuss something that one has made, she says, because you've worked from a different kind of intelligence in your frontal lobe, so you'll have to excuse me if I don't make sense very often. The opposite is in fact the case. She is thoughtful and fiercely articulate throughout. Lydia Tarr is not the first unsympathetic character Blanchett has portrayed. Her role as the ultra-conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly in the TV miniseries Mrs America is immediately springs to mind. But her sustained, pitch-perfect performance propels Todd Field's cerebral, provocative film and may well come to define her as the most gifted and risk-taking actress of our time. She is on screen for almost every scene in the film's two-hour-plus duration, brilliantly capturing the dissonant, domineering personality of a narcissistic genius whose utter self-centeredness amplified by fame, privilege and a luxurious lifestyle, has inured her to the feelings of others. I think she is one of the greatest practitioners of the art that has ever lived, says Field, when I speak to him on the phone in Los Angeles. An actor turned director, he wrote the script specifically for her and insists he would not have made the film had she not agreed to play the part. It's one thing to have a work ethic, an incredible discipline, but that does not always translate into great acting, whereas her ability is in many cases almost supernatural. I don't know where that indefinable gift comes from, but actors who have it do not come along very often. In preparation for the role, Field tells me, Kate did something I've never seen any other actor do. She memorised the entire script. Her lines, everyone else's lines, even the script references. She did a deep dive... Blanchett also learned German, took piano lessons, studied online masterclasses by the great Soviet conductor Ilya Musin, and sought out as many performances of Mahler's Fifth as she could. "'I can't tell you how many conductors I watched,' she says now, "'and they were all so idiosyncratic. "'Some are rigid beaters, some not-so-clear beaters at all, "'but very, very expressive. "'Some barely move, and some jump up and down on the podium.' I realised, through watching them, that there was a freedom to make it my own. Field, whom she describes as the master of authenticity, insisted that she should actually conduct the Dresden Philharmonic in rehearsals for Mahler's Fifth while the cameras rolled. What was that like? Terrifying, absolutely terrifying, she says, laughing. I began by asking for their patience and said in my terrible German, I'm an actor playing a musician and you are musicians playing actors. We had their trust early on, and we found our way together. Blanchett's immersion in the role is total, and the sheer force of her presence drives the narrative as it moves from a realist, almost documentary style, to something altogether stranger, as Tars' once assured sense of herself unravels. In a celebrated career, Blanchett has tackled many demanding parts, from the title role in her breakout film Elizabeth, released 1998, to her acclaimed performance in Carol, released 2015, Todd Haynes' lush tale of forbidden love. Did any of her previous parts prepare her for the sustained intensity of this role? Well, I've had the good fortune of working with extraordinary directors on really interesting films, but I've never had such a deep and rich collaboration. There was something really immersive about this one, beyond anything I thought possible outside the theatre. I've never encountered a story like this, or a character like this. She inhabited my dreams. At her worst, though, Lydia Tarr's behaviour is the stuff of nightmares. The terms most commonly used to describe Tarr in even the most positive coverage of the film are monster and monstrous. Does Blanchett think of her in this way? Well, for me personally, the world in which we live is monstrous, she replies. It enables, invites, and often enshrines and rewards monstrous behaviour. It's very easy to say she is monstrous, but the film is much more ambiguous than that. It begins with a close-up not on a person, but on a mobile phone, an instrument of easy opinion and gossip as well as information. I'm not demonising it entirely, but that is the world in which we live. The character, on the other hand, is enigmatic. In a way, I felt I was playing a state of being, or a set of atmospheres, as much as I was playing a person. That, however, is not how Marin Alsop, the world's most celebrated living female conductor, saw it. Like the fictional Lydia Tarr, Alsop is a lesbian married to a classical musician with whom she has a child. And, like Lydia Tarr, she runs a fellowship for young female musicians – and was mentored by the great American conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. In a recent interview with the Sunday Times, Allsopp said the filmmaker's decision to portray a woman in the role and make her an abuser was heartbreaking, given that there were so many men, actual documented men, the film could have been based on. She was, she said, offended as a woman, as a conductor, as a lesbian. When I mention the interview to Blanchett, she responds calmly. For me, what is wonderful about the film, and sophisticated about the narrative, is that it examines power in a way that is genderless. Nothing is drawn. It's not just a film about a female conductor who falls from grace. It's about something much less political than that, even though the position she finds herself in is incredibly political. I think it's a very complex film, and one that will stand the test of time and it's certainly not a literal film, and to endeavour to interpret it literally is, I think, a misdirect. Blanchett describes Tarr's shape-shifting narrative as a kind of haunting, which certainly applies to the final third of the film, in which we experience events, and possibly imaginings, from Lydia Tarr's feverish and fragmenting point of view. There is an elusive, existential quality to it that is part reality but an even larger part the nightmare into which she is descending, she says. I think she is very haunted by things she has not had the courage or the ability or the time or the inclination to look at and examine. She pauses for a moment. It's a tricky thing when you're playing someone who is very hidden from themselves, who has been so focused on and devoted their life to the pursuit of excellence who suddenly puts her head up and realises that she is not perceived as the person she thinks she is, or that she has caused damage to people. She has been blind to it, because she has been so enraptured by what's in front of her. Despite, or perhaps in part because of, the strong reactions it has provoked, Tar is a film that has creatively energised Kate Blanchett. I'm still processing the experience, she says, because it has tipped me off my axis in a wonderful way. Working with Fields, she says, she experienced the sort of freedom she usually only finds on stage. The process was such that we were not entirely sure exactly where we were going to end up, and that was thrilling. It felt much more dynamic and much less like having a safety net. You don't get to work in that way very often in cinema, because cinema doesn't often explore the non-literal end of its capacity. Blanchett's roots are in the theatre – and one senses that it is the visceral nature of live performance that still engages her most. Her first serious role, age 23, was in a Sydney Theatre Company production of David Mamet's Oleana in 1992, and later that same year she was critically acclaimed for her performance as Clytemnestra in Sophocles' Electra. The first time you experience that form of catharsis, she says, you're at the centre of something that you keep wanting to get back to the centre of. Thirty years on, she is talking with the British theatre director Katie Mitchell about a possible stage adaptation of Lucy Elman's contemporary modernist novel Duck's Newburyport, which is an epic stream-of-consciousness narrative comprised of a single sentence. In a way, it's a bit like Tar, she says, because the audience thinks I've got to understand every single sentence this person is saying, whereas for me, the book, like the film makes rhythmic sense as much as being deeply painful and funny and unsettling. Blanchett's schedule is, to say the least, packed, and her work rate phenomenal, even by the standards of Hollywood acting royalty. For me, I suppose, it's the process rather than the outcome that's important, she says, when I ask what she considers her pivotal roles. It's all about the quality of conversation that I've been part of. I realised very quickly that the opportunities to spread one's wings in this industry closed down very quickly, because often it is such a literal medium. And so I took little parts where I could keep experimenting, parts other people didn't want to do. People would say, you have got to stop playing small roles, and I'd say, well why? I was just interested in the experimentation of it, and not building a career. I didn't know what that was, I still don't. Nevertheless, here she is, arguably the most respected and possibly the most grounded actress in the world. When I ask her how she deals with the other stuff that attends her calling, the celebrity, the constant attention, the adulation, she shrugs. I don't get bothered by it. There is so much to do in the world, and I have learned over the years to just focus on the task at hand. So if someone in the supermarket taps me on the shoulder, I'm always surprised by it and there are a couple of films I've been privileged to be part of that have affected people, Carol being one of them, and I'm always very moved by the responses. She gives the question some more thought and adds, I can get uncomfortable perhaps when there's a conflation between who I am, whoever the fuck that is, and the characters I've played. That is because I couldn't be less interested in bringing the role to me. Instead, I at least attempt to rise to the occasion of the role and with Tar, that was a very big mountain to climb. Blanchett currently divides her time between Los Angeles, where she mostly works, rural Sussex, where she lives with her husband, Andrew Upton, a playwright and screenwriter, and their four children, and her native Australia, which she misses deeply. It's a very magnetic and alive place. You can have unruly ideas and give things a go without the sense that anyone's going to care. There is no preciousness there in relation to the arts. Between 2008 and 2013, Blanchett and Upton served as co-directors and CEOs of the Sydney Theatre Company, Australia's de facto national theatre. When the board members asked them what their aims were, she says laughing, We told them that, at the end of the day, we want people to get in a cab and say, we're going to the Sydney Theatre Company, and for the cab driver to know where the fuck it is. What was it like running a theatre as well as acting in it? One of the hardest things was being up there alone addressing people. It's not like when you're up there dancing and moving and making something with a group of people. That's when I'm totally in my element, when it feels like I'm part of an organism. Recently she has been back in Australia, filming Warwick Thornton's The New Boy, which she has co-produced and stars in. We went to visit friends in Tasmania, she says, when I ask her if she may eventually return home. It had just rained, and the sun came out, and suddenly there was the smell of the earth and the smell of eucalyptus. I just wept. I'm so deeply connected to that place. But we are in England, and the kids go to school there, and we are about to plant some trees, and our cat died, and once you bury a cat on the land where you live, you're connected. So I'm torn. For now, she's still making sense of the transportive and deeply collaborative experience of working with Todd Field on TAR. It has really shaken me up, in a good way, she says. Look, I'm always wanting to stop acting, to just step away. But this has made me think it's not that I want to stop. I just want to do less. She pauses for a moment. It's just very hard to say no to a good idea.
0: That was Kate Blanchett, I've Never Encountered a Character Like Tar, She Inhabited My Dreams, by Sean O'Hagan, read by Briny Ruhl. We'll be back after this short break.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: Welcome back to Weekend. Next, energy drinks are a $50 billion global industry, a vital pick-me-up for gig economy workers, and thanks to KSI and Logan Paul's own brand Prime, a cult among teens. But journalist B Wilson asks, what are these sugary, often hyper-masculine brands doing to those who drink them? Read by Sophie Mercel.
3: A 13-year-old I know, whose identity I am thinly veiling to preserve his privacy, came back from school the other day and told me that there was a year nine kid dealing prime at the back of the class. Apparently, this boy was sourcing the prime from a supplier in London for £2 a unit before selling it on to children, who didn't know any better, for 8 quid. Prime isn't, as I first thought, a drug, but a sports drink in bright plastic bottles promoted by the YouTube stars KSI and Logan Paul. Prime Hydration contains coconut water, B vitamins and sweeteners, plus branched chain amino acids, which are used by bodybuilders to promote muscles. And it comes in lurid flavours, including Tropical Punch and Blue Raspberry. Another version of the drink, called Prime Energy, also contains 200 milligrams of caffeine, more than twice as much as a can of Red Bull. A headteacher at a different school reports that older children have been taking empty bottles of Prime, filling them with water and selling them to naive Year 7s, who are left in tears when they discover it isn't the real thing. It seems there is no shortage of 11 to 15-year-old boys prepared to pay £8 for these glorified bottles of squash, which have become a status symbol of sorts. Actually, £8 isn't even that expensive for Prime, which last year was selling for £19.99 and upwards a bottle – an off-licence in Wakefield known as Wakey Wines, which developed a cult following after customers started filming themselves buying expensive soft drinks there and putting it on TikTok. Something strange is happening in the world of energy drinks. These concoctions, soft drinks that claim to boost potency and productivity, have been around in one form or another since the 1940s. But never before have they been such an intense and frequently purchased object of desire. In some convenience stores and supermarkets, whole chiller cabinets are now devoted to them. The names alone can make you feel hyped up. Monster. Relentless. Rockstar. Boost. ferocity, Engine. Tiger. Grenade. The sugary soft drinks market is finally declining in many countries as consumers become more aware of the effects of sugar on health. Yet energy drink sales are still rising rapidly year on year. Red Bull, the market leader, sold 11.582 billion cans globally in 2022 compared with 4 billion cans in 2011. According to the grocer, Red Bull saw its total UK revenues rise by 19% in 2021 to £414.7 million. The hysteria around prime hydration is an example of how fervently certain energy drinks are now thirsted after. On the 4th of January 2022, The Drink was launched during an Instagram broadcast featuring KSI and Paul, two social media stars who had previously made much of the beef between them. Viewers tuned in expecting to see the pair doing the latest in a series of highly publicised boxing matches. Instead of which, they announced that they were no longer rivals, but had come together as co creators of a soft drinks company. In just three months, by the end of March 2022, sales of Prime had reached over $10 million worldwide. In December, there were said to be scenes of carnage in British branches of Aldi after the supermarket started selling Prime hydration. In theory, customers were limited to a single bottle of each flavour but adults and children were seen pushing each other and sprinting through the stores to sweep up as many bottles as they could for £2 each. Maybe Prime fans really think that the drink will make them feel extra hydrated in some deep but not entirely defined way. The label boasts that with bold, thirst-quenching flavours to help you refresh, replenish and refuel, Prime is the perfect boost for every endeavour. Who wouldn't want that? It's a rare person in the modern world who doesn't feel in need of a lift, whether to help us run faster, work harder, party longer, play a PS4 game for 10 hours straight or just to make it through the rigours of the day without collapsing. Ever since they were first marketed, energy drinks have preyed on the sense of near-permanent exhaustion, or lowness, or general loss of edge that so many carry with us, even as teenagers. Red Bull Gives You Wings was a genius slogan, both for what it promised and for the implicit acknowledgement that this was actually a load of cobblers. Humans can't grow wings. The fact that energy drinks are on a high is partly a sign that so many people are on a low, working longer and more stressful hours for smaller wages. These beverages are what you have to caffeinate yourself with when you have no access to a kettle, never mind an espresso machine, and you know you need to stay awake for another few hours of your shift. A recent undercover report in The Times on the working conditions in a warehouse for a major online clothes retailer described the steady flow of canteen Red Bulls to fuel 12-hour days of grinding monotony. A young person I know recently started his first full job as a social worker, and he has found that energy drink use is near universal among both his colleagues and his clients as a coping mechanism for living with problems such as poor housing or domestic abuse. As a coffee drinker, I wince at the thought of starting the day with an energy drink, but he replies that to pretend that these people running their lives on sugar-free energy drinks is qualitatively different from running on coffee is just class prejudice, and so I shut up. Elixirs and tonics of one kind or another have been around for centuries. But the first true energy drink seems to have been something called Dr. Enough, the creation of a chemist from Chicago. Unless you want to argue that Coca-Cola, invented in the 1880s, is an energy drink, given that in its first incarnation it contained cocaine as well as caffeine. The original version of Dr. Enough was a lemon-lime flavour beverage and, like most energy drinks today, its basic ingredients, apart from water, were sugar, caffeine and vitamins. One of the early advertisements for Dr. Enough is said to have boasted that it was the answer to a housewife's prayer, the bosom companion of a tired farmer or businessman and a shift into high gear for young Johnny or Mary. Dr. Enough never achieved wide appeal, though it is still for sale in parts of the U.S. It was in Japan, not the U.S., that energy drinks first became part of mainstream culture. The earliest Japanese energy drinks in the 1960s were sold as a legal upper for office workers. After a series of laws in the 1950s curbed the sale of stimulant drugs, including amphetamines, which had previously been the go-to way for boosting productivity at the office. The earliest Japanese energy drink was Lipovitan D, first sold in 1962. Adverts claimed that it would help with physical fatigue, lack of appetite, nutritional deficiency, fever and exhaustion. One of the key ingredients in Lipa Vitam D was taurine, a booster that was originally manufactured from ox bile, but which is now synthesised in a factory. Taurine, the word comes from the Latin "taurus," meaning bull or ox, is an amino acid which is naturally present in meat, poultry and fish, and it is part of the formula of almost all modern energy drinks, even though its effects as a supplement are far from clear. A review by two doctors in 2016 could find no double-blind clinical trials to measure whether taurine affects the energy of healthy human patients, though there are trials with rodents suggesting that taurine can improve cognitive performance in old age. Whether or not it does anything for you, taurine, with its vague aura of bullish potency, is important for the mystique of energy drinks. Red Bull was created in the 1980s after an Austrian businessman called Dietrich Matterschitz came across a Thai drink called Gratting Deng, made from taurine and caffeine. He developed a fizzy version of this in collaboration with its creator, Chulio Uwidia, and in 1987 started marketing it as Red Bull, whose visual branding is all an allusion to the taurine. I know several grown men who wax lyrical about the beauty of the Red Bull packaging with its intense sheen and its tiny cutout of a bull in the ring pull. As for the function... These drinks have always basically been legal uppers. Lipovitan D comes in a small brown glass bottle, which makes it look like a tiny vial of medicine. So called Genki drinks, such as Lipovitan D, were one of the crucial elements in the Japanese post war economic miracle, enabling workers to stay on task for long hours. There was a second wave of Genki drinks in the 1980s, led by the brand Regain, which saw a whole new set of highly caffeinated products enter the market. In contrast to the giant 500ml cans of Monster in British shops today, the classic Japanese Genki drink comes in tiny 50ml or 100ml bottles, marketing themselves as a quick burst of productivity Primarily sold to salary men. The energy in Japanese energy drinks has always been laced with overtly macho overtones. During the 90s, the theme tune for regain sang of the businessman, businessman, Japanese businessman who could fight for 24 hours. Another regain advert showed a Japanese businessman defeating his Western opponent in a game of tennis using his briefcase instead of a racket. James Roberson is an anthropologist who has studied energy drinks as a facet of post-war Japanese ideas about masculinity. Robeson found that Genki drinks were consistently marketed with the implied promise that they would bestow on men both an inexhaustible fighting will and a strongly muscular body. D was first marketed with the slogan Let's go with Fight, and its adverts have regularly featured sportsmen or highly muscled actors engaged in some kind of daring and dangerous outdoor pursuits. Aggressive masculinity is also a key element in the way that most Western energy drinks have been marketed. You can feel the teenage boy angst dripping off it, says Hub Van Bockel, the founder of up-and-coming energy drink Tenzing referring to Monster, which is currently the second most-sold energy drink in the UK after Red Bull. Monster Energy, whose slogan is Unleash the Beast, has long made a point of sponsoring a lineup of male athletes doing extreme sports, such as motocross riders, skateboarders, surfers and Formula One racers. I pick up a can of Monster Assault for £2.39 at WH Smith at the train station. I could have got it for half the price at Asda. The whole can is plastered with military camouflage and it reads, At Monster, we don't get too hung up on politics. We don't care if you're right wing, left wing or a chicken wing. We dig camo and think it's the perfect cover for our sneak attack on the ordinary. But when I crack open this hyper-masculine can, what's inside tastes less like military rations than the candy shop dreams of a sweet-toothed little boy. It's cola flavour, but tastes more like melted-down cola bottles than a Coke. I can't finish it, both because of the sickliness and because I can feel myself getting jittery halfway through the can. It contains ginseng and taurine, as well as 160 milligrams of caffeine, compared with around 50 milligrams of caffeine in a classic Italian espresso, although it's less caffeine than in a Starbucks Venti Americano, which contains 300 milligrams. The unrealistic, strong man images pushed by many energy drinks prey on young men's vulnerabilities and end up making them unhealthier all while promising them enhanced vitality. A study by the University of Akron, published in the journal Health Psychology, found that men who bought most thoroughly into the manly ideals promoted by energy drinks were more likely to drink more of them, and therefore more likely to suffer from disrupted sleep patterns, thus ending up less energised. People who consistently consume a lot of energy drinks suffer from higher levels of anxiety and stress than those who don't, according to a review of the literature on energy drinks and mental health from 2016. Kathleen Miller is an addictions researcher affiliated with the University at Buffalo, New York, who has done extensive research on the harmful effects of energy drinks among young adults. In 2008, Miller published a paper showing that among a group of 602 college students, high energy drink consumption correlated with a range of other risky behaviours, including having sex without a condom, getting into fights, riding in a car without a seatbelt and alcohol problems. Miller is not suggesting that the caffeine in energy drinks is causing these other behaviours, As she told the New York Times in 2013, maybe kids who get into fights just happen to drink Monster and Red Bull. But her research suggests that some of these toxic jock behaviours are reinforced by what the ads are telling people. Some of the energy drinks marketed in the US, such as bong water and cocaine, make a clear association between energy drinks and illicit substances. One of the main ways in which energy drinks are used by college students is as a mixer for alcohol. Research shows that consuming vodka and Red Bull, as opposed to vodka alone, made people believe they were less drunk than they were, even though by objective measures, such as reaction times, they were every bit as intoxicated. The first time I heard of anyone drinking Red Bull and vodka in the late 90s, I thought that will never take off. It doesn't taste good, which shows how little I know. Unlike other beverages, energy drinks are consumed in spite of their taste rather than because of it. Their flavours range from medicinal to candy sweet. Perhaps the strangest I tried was Monster Original, which had an Intense, almost smoky smell, and a herbal aftertaste like cough mixture or dandelion and burdock. I imagine its kill or cure vibe could have a certain appeal if you were hungover, but taken perfectly sober with my breakfast toast one morning, it was unsettling. Another odd one is Furiosity Sour Cherry, marketed by heavyweight champion boxer Tyson Fury whose can claims it's about hitting your day harder but whose contents taste like extremely sweet marzipan mixed with cherryade the prevailing taste of most energy drinks is simply a harsh acid and sweetness with very little aroma i appreciated the honesty of the hungarian brand hell which true to its name is an abrasive and metallic tasting drink Cheap, though, I picked up a 50p can from Poundland. Hell describes itself as tutti fruity on the label, but I got zero fruity. After this, I felt a grudging appreciation for original Red Bull, which tastes very little, but is not actively offensive, with some of the acidity rounded off. Compared with Boost, a 50p imitator, which I found so sharp I could manage only a couple of mouthfuls. No one could accuse Red Bull of being delicious, but it is smoothly neutral, like lemonade without the lemons. It reminds me of an airport lounge. Red Bull was not allowed to be sold in France for 12 years, a ban that ended in 2008, because French authorities were concerned about the touring as well as the high quantities of caffeine. In 2018, the UK government proposed a ban on energy drinks to young people after a review of the evidence found that in children, high consumption was linked to headaches, problems with sleeping and concentrating, and, in rare cases, heart failure. The government's own research found that a quarter of British children who drank energy drinks would consume three or more in a sitting. But more than three years on, apparently after industry pushback, the ban has been quietly shelved, although supermarkets, including Tesco and Asda, introduced their own voluntary bans on the sale of energy drinks to under-16s. In 2021, in the British Medical Journal, a 21-year-old student called for energy drinks to carry warning labels after his own habit, four a day for two years, led him to develop tremors and heart palpitations. Who today would launch Red Bull? No one says Hub van Bockel, the Dutch entrepreneur who left his job as head of marketing for Red Bull UK and Europe to launch his own brand. Tenzing, an energy drink made from all natural ingredients with a soothing mountain on the can, has risen astonishingly fast since it was launched in 2016 to become the fourth highest selling energy drink in the UK. I'm sitting with Van Bockel in a sleek restaurant near King's Cross sipping decaf flat whites and fresh juice. And he, a running and hiking enthusiast with a mop of curly hair, is explaining why he feels the current model of energy drinks is broken. Because no matter how much they tweak them, the big brands are stuck with the same recipes. The older energy drinks were originally all very high in sugar. Most have now diversified into versions with artificial sweeteners instead. The problem is that according to the World Health Organization, these are implicated in many of the same health issues as sugar, such as type 2 diabetes, as well as long-term weight gain. Another issue is that an energy drink without any sugar delivers less energy than an energy drink with sugar, given that, in nutritional terms, calories and energy are the same thing. Aspartame will not give you any energy, so it's not functional, Van Bockel says. Every new brand needs an origin story. And Van Bockel's is that he was hiking in the mountains of Nepal when he discovered how popular strong tea flavoured with salt or lemon was among the Nepalese. In theory, Tenzing, which takes its name from the Nepali-Indian Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, is inspired by this Nepalese tea. Although the can I tasted, raspberry and yuzu flavour, was more like a pleasant and slightly weak sparkling raspberry juice. The caffeine comes from green tea and green coffee and it is much less sweet than the other energy drinks I tasted at only 4.5% sugar. 11% is an industry standard, slightly more than full sugar sodas such as Coke. I'm not a natural energy drink consumer but if I wanted something to help me stay awake on a long drive, I'd buy this. Van Bockel tells me that when he was developing the formula, The blender he worked with couldn't understand why he wanted to take out half the sugar and not replace it with anything. No one had ever asked for that before. Another point of difference is that Tenzing's customer base is roughly 50-50 male to female and the soothing Mountain branding is a world away from what Van Bockel calls the adrenaline side of other energy drinks. We don't have a lot of 15-year-olds, he says. He wants to change the whole category to usher in an era of energy drinks that are less artificial in their ingredients and less toxic in their impact on both health and the planet. Tenzing claims to be the world's first carbon-negative soft drink. What is energy? I ask Van Bockel. For a moment, he looks slightly panic-stricken, Before gathering himself and saying, it's a good question, and that there are two elements. First, the physical energy for running and climbing. Second, the mental energy for concentration and focus at work. But I wonder whether this really gets to the heart of why so many people are attracted to energy drinks. The word energy comes from the Greek, and at its root, it simply means in work. The giant caffeine and sweetness hit of the original energy drinks may not be healthy, either emotionally or physically, but it is an undeniable jolt to the system. Instead of asking why energy drinks are so popular, maybe we should be asking why so many millions of people feel broken enough to need them.
0: That was you can feel the teenage boy angst dripping off them. What's Really Going On With Energy Drinks? by B. Wilson, read by Sophie Marcel. Now, for many people, their personality can feel like a hindrance. From forming relationships to taking risks, having a certain mindset can hold us back. But, David Robson discovers, the latest research suggests there's hope for those of us searching to break free from certain behaviours, and shift into a more positive trajectory, read by Brani Ruhl. Have
2: you ever wished you could be better organised, or more sociable, or more inventive and original? Perhaps you're a constant worrier, and you'd prefer to be a little more carefree. If any of these thoughts ring true, you are far from alone. A number of surveys show that at least two-thirds of people would like to change some element of their personality. In the past, such desires appeared to be futile. Our personalities were thought to be formed in childhood and to remain fixed throughout lives. Like the proverbial leopard that could never change its spots, our virtues and flaws were believed to be woven into the fabric of our psyche. Recent scientific research, however, confounds this expectation of personality's permanence. With the right psychological strategies and enough effort, many people can successfully mould their core traits into the shape they desire. There are many ways of measuring personality, but much of the research has centred on five specific traits that are thought to comprise our most fundamental characteristics. Known as the big five, they are extraversion how outgoing and sociable you are, conscientiousness, how organised and disciplined you are, agreeableness, how concerned you are with social harmony, neuroticism, how nervous and sensitive you are, and openness to experience, how imaginative and curious you are. In thousands of studies, psychologists have shown that people's scores for the Big Five can predict important outcomes in a range of areas – People who score highly on conscientiousness, for example, get better grades at school and earn more. Those who score highly on neuroticism, meanwhile, are more predisposed to stress, which has knock-on effects for their health. Our genes almost certainly play a role. It's why people's personalities often reflect their biological parents' traits, and why identical twins are more similar than non-identical siblings' the influence of our social environment was thought to end in early adulthood as the brain reached maturity. If this were true, you would not expect adults' personalities to change naturally over time, and it wouldn't be possible to mould personality at will. Yet, that is exactly what psychology professor Nathan Hudson and his colleagues have shown with a series of groundbreaking studies. Their interventions typically involve prescribing regular activities that reflect the personality traits people wish to adopt. An introvert who wished to be more extroverted, for example, might have the goal of introducing themselves to a stranger once a week or making small talk with the cashier at their local supermarket. Someone who wished to be more conscientious might be asked to carefully proofread an email before sending it or to write a to-do list before going to bed. A neurotic person might be given exercises to improve emotional regulation such as writing down feelings when they threaten to become overwhelming. While these tasks may seem insignificant, the aim is for the thinking patterns and behaviours they generate to become habitual. And the evidence so far suggests it works remarkably well. In one 15-week trial of nearly 400 people, participants accepted an average of two challenges each week, provided they actually completed those tasks their traits shifted in the desired direction, according to a standard Big Five questionnaire. Similarly exciting results could be seen in a later experiment, which used a smartphone app to coach participants in their desired Big Five traits. Crucially, this study involved a much larger sample, 1,500 people, and in addition to the typical self-report questionnaires, It asked participants, friends and family to rate their personalities before and after the intervention. The differences were still apparent three months after the experiment had ended. As Aristotle argued more than 2,300 years ago, we become what we repeatedly do. The unexpected malleability of our minds should be good news for anyone who wishes they were a bit more sociable, organised or happy-go-lucky. Another potential benefit is that awareness of this research could help improve mental health. Conditions such as depression and anxiety are often characterised by feelings of helplessness. People believe negative feelings are just part of who they are, and there is little they can do to change them. This can compound the sadness and worry they face and may also make them more resistant to treatment or making lifestyle changes that could speed their recovery. What if educating people about their potential for personality change placed them on a more positive trajectory? To test this idea, Jessica Schleider, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at Stony Brook University, New York, and John R. Wise, Professor of Psychology at Harvard, selected a group of around 100 adolescents who had previously shown signs of anxiety or depression. They took a brief computerised course that explained the science of brain plasticity, alongside statements from older students who described the ways they had grown over their school years. They were then given worksheets to consolidate what they had learned. When Schleider and Wise checked in on the teens' mental health nine months later, the students reported a significant decrease in their anxiety and depression compared with those who had instead taken part in a course on emotional expression. The same strategy has since been tested in other settings with larger numbers of participants that have produced equally positive outcomes. Teaching people about personality growth is not a panacea, but these results suggest that it may be a useful tool to help build greater psychological resilience. Whether you're wrestling with serious issues, or simply want to polish off your rougher edges, it is reassuring to know that character is ultimately within your own hands. DNA and our upbringing may predispose us to certain traits, but we also have the power to shape our future selves.
0: That was The Big Idea. Your personality is not set in stone. By David Robson. Read by Brani Rule. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Brani Rule and Sophie Marcel, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?